Exodus chapter 2. So you got Genesis and then you got Exodus chapter 2. I'm also going to ask you um, ahead of time to hold a finger in Acts chapter 7. If you want to just mark that somehow to make it easy on you, because I'm going to refer to that a couple different times tonight. And I do want to encourage you to cross-reference in your Bible and even write down uh, parallel passages uh, next to ones that you study, because I think it's very beneficial. The Bible interprets the Bible, and so it's important for you to get used to cross-referencing. I'm going to take you to the Acts 7 account where the first martyr of the church, Stephen, goes through the history of Israel. He mentions many of the events that we're going to look at tonight and brings some light to them, some interesting light. So I want to uh, just let you know ahead of time that we'll be flipping over there. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Now, just uh, so you know, right off the bat, these are uh, references to Moses' parents. Um, Amram and Yoshebed would be the official names that we have later on in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice that these two, the parents of Moses, are from the tribe of Levi, or the house of Levi. And you remember that Levi was the uh, tribe that was chosen for the priestly service. And you remember that Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. So it's interesting that right here early on, Moses tells us that the parents are from Levi. And the woman, probably Yoshebed here, there's some uh, debate about the timing of uh, events and whether or not they could have been grandparents, Amram and Yoshebed, but we'll stick with the traditional view for now and assume that she is Moses' mother. She conceived and bore a son, And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, uh, you'll remember back in Exodus chapter 1, the reason that she would be concerned about hiding the child. If you were with us last week, uh, just look at the end of chapter 1 of Exodus at verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. And I think the conclusion that we'll come to taking the context of Exodus 1 is that Pharaoh, uh, his plan with the midwives did not work. He asked the Hebrew midwives that if a male was born to the Hebrew women as they were literally sitting on the birth stones and these would be, it's depicted as a birth stool in your Bible but it would literally be that the women would sit on two stones and they would give birth to a child and there would be a midwife there and and Pharaoh's decree was that if that's a male child you see coming out you kill it on the spot remember the midwives uh, disobeyed his command they would not do it they feared God too much and God blessed them because of that but this was Pharaoh's command and since it didn't work he commanded all of his people and the idea is that all of the Egyptian people who saw a Hebrew child had an edict upon their life that they were to uh, commit murder literally given from the head of their uh, country, they were to kill all Hebrew babies who were male. And so if a Hebrew woman had a child and she was trying to find a way to save his life, she would have to take pretty radical measures because everyone was now uh, on call to commit this unspeakable act. Now, it's interesting that here when Moses records uh, this uh, uh, event, 
he says that the child was beautiful and I don't think this is a self-serving statement and I, by the way I don't think this is the mother's motivation to hide him <laughs> just in case you thought maybe if he was ugly uh, you know wow well, whatever <laughs> I don't think that's the case at all as a matter of fact this kind of intrigued me because I thought to myself and I often do this as I study the Bible probably a lot like you why is that reference there why would the Holy Spirit guide Moses to say the child is beautiful well this is where Acts 7 comes in so if you turn to Acts 7 and look at verse 17 Acts 7 17 now Stephen the martyr is going through and he's trying to show Israel that they had been stiff-necked and resisted the Holy Spirit and he goes into their own history to show them how oftentimes they would reject God's plan. And here in Acts 7:17, 7, and this is a speech for which Stephen is killed. He says, "But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham," Acts 7:17, 7, "the people increased and multiplied in Egypt." We saw that in chapter 1. Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive, verse 20. And it was at this time that Moses was born. And he was, you might want to mark it in your Bible, lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. I thought it was interesting that in Acts seven twenty, when Stephen talks about what really happened here, he gives us a little further insight and he says that the child was beautiful in the eyes of God. And I thought how intriguing that is that that is the commentary that we have about this passage. And I thought that's probably the way that God looks at every child. I think every child is beautiful to God. Because the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God weaves us together in our mother's womb. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so Moses was beautiful in the sight of God. And that strikes me in light of what he shared with us earlier, that no matter what comes at us, uh, we know that God loves us and that God has a plan. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. I think the implication here from Stephen's commentary on Exodus is that somehow it was found out that this child uh, existed, that he was being hidden away, and somehow the mother determined that after three months of nurturing him and uh, suckling him and doing all that she would do as a mother, uh, now she was in trouble. Uh, he had been exposed. Something had happened to where uh, there was knowledge of his existence and so she didn't know what she was going to do. And if you turn back to Exodus, you could imagine the heart-wrenching pain of a mother uh, to now try to decide how she will spare her son. She knows that there is a kingdom-wide edict that he should die. She knows that uh, to hide him puts the whole family in jeopardy. She knows if they're found out that he's probably going to be killed. And I don't know what you would do. Um, but we're told in Hebrews 11 that uh, it tells us that when Moses' parents decided to take this act of trusting God and putting him in something that we're going to look at in a moment, it was an act of faith. And somehow they had a sense that it, the time was now that they needed to do something to save him and they had to do something radical and so back in Exodus uh, 2 verse 3 it says when she could hide him no longer 
she got him a wicker basket. If you have a New King James or a King James version, it says that she got an ark of bulrushes. You might find it interesting, but this is the only other place other than the mention of the ark of Noah in Genesis where this Hebrew term for ark is used. And so that's intriguing because what she creates is out of some type of... uh, uh, what you would use to weave together a basket kind of plant but what she gets together to uh, here is what the new american standard says is a wicker basket but the new king james and king james say is an ark of bulrushes uh literally a wicker papyrus you could put it a basket of egyptian origin this was this word for basket as i mentioned is used here and only in another place one other place and that is of noah's ark and so this edict has been given and the mother has to do something and so she puts her son moses in a mini ark and that's interesting because she's going to place this mini basket or ark on the waters isn't she and she's going to hope that indeed her child will be saved as a result. And you wonder in your mind, knowing how the Hebrews knew their Bibles, if she didn't have that in mind the whole time as she constructed this little basket in which uh, she would allow her son to ride. And so here it is. And notice uh, in this uh, little mini ark that she creates, she covered it over with tar and pitch And she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Uh, Interesting that uh, indeed that's what Noah did. He covered the ark of gopher wood with pitch uh, in order to make it waterproof. And this is precisely what, if it's Yoshebed, she does. And this would be uh, hopefully the ideal place uh, where her son can be protected on the water. Ironically, uh, the king's edict of Egypt is to drown the Hebrew babies into the Nile. And I suggested to you last week that it's interesting that they thought the Nile was a god. And I wondered in the back of my mind if somehow they felt like when they drowned the babies in uh, the Nile, if they were somehow sacrificing to the Nile god. A little later, when we go through the plagues of Egypt, you're going to see one of the plagues be that the Nile River turns to blood. And it interests me that Pharaoh wanted to spill the blood of the Hebrew children into the Nile God. And God says in the plague on the Nile when he turns it to blood, guess what? I just killed your God. He's dead because he's not real. It's amazing how God will turn things back on people's heads. Ironically, another story comes to mind the Egyptian army is pursuing Israel. Israel's trapped at the edge of the Red Sea. They think they've got the children of Israel. God puts up the, the pillar of fire, blocks the way of the Egyptian army, opens the sea. The Israelites pass through on dry ground and then the Egyptian army pursues them. And what does God do? He takes the Red Sea and drowns the entire Egyptian army. Exactly what you wanted to do to my people, I just did to your army. And that's why I love the scene when Yul Brenner comes back home and he sits on the throne and his wife says, did you kill him? I want to see his blood. I want to see his blood. And he says, he looks at her and he says, his God is God. And I love that scene. And that's indeed what God was trying to show, that all the false gods indeed were that, just false.
And his sister stood at a distance, verse 4, to find out what would happen to him. Now, this is Miriam, and Miriam, of course, was the older sister of Moses. Uh, there was a brother as well, and I mentioned him earlier. His name was Aaron. Aaron was three years older than Moses. We'll find that out a little bit later. And Miriam was the oldest sister. Now, Miriam is following this little ark at a distance, and she wanted to see what would happen to him. And I'm sure she was, as a good big sister, praying all the while. I don't know what was in the Nile at that time, but I'm sure it wasn't friendly to a three-month-old child. Uh, and, uh, of course, I'm sure that the mother was praying as well and hoping. And she may have done something intentional here. She may have known that this was a bathing spot uh, for the royalty uh, of Egypt. So she let the basket go. And uh, as she did, Miriam looked to see what would happen. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down, verse 5, to bathe at the Nile with her maidens or her attendants, walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid as she brought it to her. And she brought it to her. Now, uh, this is one of the probably many daughters of Pharaoh. He probably wouldn't just have one princess. And by the way, when she went down to the Nile, she wasn't just going for what we would consider a regular bath. To bathe in the Nile was a ritual religious kind of activity for the Egyptians. They felt that the Nile was sacred waters. And so to go into the Nile was to dip in the ritual sacred waters and the maidens, probably four of them, were standing there and bathing the princess. This is the scene that's going on. She notices the basket by God's providence. She sees it among the reeds. She sends one of the attendants to go get it. And when she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now you remember in the story of the Ten Commandments, if you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's depiction, the way she knows it's a Hebrew child is she sees the pattern of uh, a blanket or a cloth that's been created by those who lived in Goshen. But in this case, the way that she probably knows that uh, Moses is Hebrew is that he's circumcised. Uh, we're told in Egypt that they would circumcise uh, males, but they wouldn't do it until later in life. You know that the command of God was to uh, circumcise a Hebrew baby on the eighth day. So she could have easily just unwrapped the child and seen that he was circumcised and known that that mark gave him away. But I want you to notice that she has pity on him. And this is the second case at least where a woman will thwart the plan of Pharaoh. The first ones to thwart the plan were the midwives, and you could say the second ones were the Hebrew women who had babies too fast for the midwives to get there. If that exactly is what was going on or was just a whopper that they told, I don't know. But the third woman who defies Pharaoh is his own daughter who takes a baby that was supposed to be dead and ironically in God's providential hand God's going to use this child through his daughter through Pharaoh's daughter to save his entire kingdom and basically destroy Egypt at least for a time and so that's the irony going on here and so Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on the child and uh, she is moved to compassion. I don't know if that's uh, God moving her, her, but God's certainly in control of this whole thing. She identifies Moses as one of the Hebrew children, and now she needs someone to nurse the child. So 
his sister. <laughs> uh, this is Miriam now speaking up. She sees that the basket's found, and so she makes one of those uh, straightforward suggestions. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? So you love how Miriam steps in here. Here's another uh, woman thwarting the plan of Pharaoh. And I love it how even at the tomb of Jesus, it was the women who were there first, and they were the ones that showed courage. And... Uh, they were the ones that uh, God moved through in a mighty way. And women can be tough sometimes when guys are really wimpy. Have you ever noticed that before? And so this is awesome that God's using these women in this way. And so Miriam steps forward and says, Shall I call for a nurse from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Isn't this great that it is, uh, turns out that Yoshebed just had to give him away just for a few, what seems like a few moments because she's going to get him back now and she's going to be able to nurse him. We don't know how long Yoshebed had uh, to nurse the child, but we do know that it could have been for a good two or three years depending on how long they would nurse at that uh, time. This would have given her ample time to start to whisper into the ears of Moses about Yahweh, the true God, and begin perhaps to plant in Bible verses and stuff like that. I don't know to what extent that would have happened, but I do know, as we're going to see, that Moses had a strong faith in God. And so the girl grabs the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And isn't it a crack up how uh, this whole scene turns and now the Pharaoh's daughter is paying the mother to nurse the child. How amazing is our God. It reminds me of that story that I told you guys on Sunday about the lady who was praying for the groceries, remember? And she says, Lord, I need groceries. And the atheist bought the groceries. And then remember how she said, God, use the devil's money to buy me groceries. Praise the Lord. This is kind of reminiscent of that. God uses these circumstances that Pharaoh intended for evil. And now Moses' own mother is getting paid for nursing him. And the child grew, and we're going to skip over a great segment of Moses' life now. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. We're about to get to the fact that uh, uh, as he grew, and then we're going to get to the fact that he becomes a man quickly in this account. The Bible just is going to skip over basically his whole childhood until he's about the age of 40. But in verse 10, I want you to notice that the child grew, uh, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. It must have been painful for mom. And F Moses became her son, the son of the princess. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. In Hebrew, Moses means he who draws out. And it's interesting how Moses, this is probably a wordplay by the Holy Spirit in Hebrew because Moses was drawn out of the water, but he would be the deliverer who would draw out the people of God from Egypt, which is a type of the world. So isn't it beautiful how you have these little intricate details from the Holy Spirit? He would be the one to draw them out and draw them through the Red Sea. And literally, that's what his name means. And it's an Egyptian name, but in Hebrew, it literally means to draw out. You remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. 
all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And uh, it reminds me that as the church, we are the called out ones. We've been called out of the world. Remember, the world is a type of Egypt, or the, uh, Egypt, the type of the world. We've been called out of the world and called to Jesus Christ, who is our deliverer. And so that's kind of the New Testament fulfillment of what we see here. And so you tonight are the called out ones, called out of the world and called to God through Jesus Christ. Now it came about, verse 11, in those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and he looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating or smiting or striking a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now you still have your finger in Acts 7? Go over to Acts 7. Now, I want to show you something interesting here about what it says about Moses going out. Acts 7.24. Stephen says, when he saw, when Moses saw one of them being treated unjustly, Acts 7.24, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Man, or men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? Boy, that's a good question we could ask to the church tonight, huh? You are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And we're going to get to this. And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, I want you to notice, let's focus in on verse 25. When Moses saw this uh, scene where the Egyptian is striking the Hebrew, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him but they did not understand. Now look at back at verse 23, Acts 7. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind, the New King James says, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now it's interesting to me because we often think that Moses didn't understand the call until the burning bush scene and then he's sent back to Pharaoh to execute God's plan. But the implication from the commentary on, in Acts 7 from Stephen is that Moses already knew that he was the deliverer. Before he ever left Egypt, he knew. And it was put into his heart that he should go and visit his brethren. And what he did, I'm sure he knew what was going on, but he literally went out to see what was going on with the idea in his mind that he was the deliverer. And when he went, he immediately saw one of the taskmasters that we read about in chapter 1 beating a Hebrew, probably violently, perhaps even on the verge of killing him. And Moses thought, aha, here's my opportunity. God's placed it on my heart that I'm the deliverer. And so what did Moses do? Well, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Now, if you read commentaries on Exodus, you'll find that commentators will often say, uh, you know what? Moses got ahead of God's plan. God wanted him to be the deliverer, but it was in God's time and in God's way. And what Moses did was as soon as he saw, the first thing he saw was this uh, Hebrew being beat. He killed the Egyptian. Should he have done that? 
Was that stepping uh, out of God's will? Was that uh, going too quick? Was that uh, taking matters into his own hands, perhaps? And maybe, you know, tonight we can relate to that, can't we? You know, sometimes we've tried to step into situations, haven't we? We thought, oh, I'm going to do something about this one. This person needs to be straightened out. I'm going to step in. I'm going to do something. And oftentimes, let's be honest, we've found that we've stepped in something, but it's not too positive. See, whenever we try to step in and do something, <laughs> that's a good word picture, isn't it, tonight? Whenever we try to step in and do something that's out of God's will and out of God's timing, we get in trouble, don't we? It takes a while to clean it off, get rid of the stench, if you know what I mean. And I think tonight we can learn something from that. Maybe Moses was ahead of God. Maybe this wasn't God's timing. And I thought, you know what, that's intriguing. But there's a second thing here that we can't miss. And, that, and it's found back in Acts 7.25. See, he thought that his brethren would understand that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they didn't understand. And you know what? Moses is a type of Jesus. And it interests me that when Jesus comes into the world, and we saw this in John chapter 1 just in our last Sunday, he came to his own but his own would not receive him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus tells a parable in Luke 19, he says that, uh, in essence, the Jews are saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And we're going to see that that's precisely what an, uh, a Hebrew says to Moses. Who made you ruler over us? Well, uh, I got news for you. Uh, God... See, God made Moses the deliverer, but the Hebrews weren't ready to receive him as the deliverer. So Moses goes off to Midian for 40 years. Do you think it's possible that if they had received him right then that God would have done something maybe at that moment? I don't know. But I'll tell you, it's an interesting thought to think that somehow the response of the Jewish people may have at least put off the plan of God. I don't know. I'll leave that for you to chew on. But it's interesting that uh, this is what's happening. Um, and so if you go back to Exodus chapter 2, you'll notice that Moses comes out now. He's about 40 years of age. And there we get the chronology from Acts 7. And uh, there he is <coughs> seeing this Egyptian striking this Hebrew. And so in verse 12 it says, He looked this way and that and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. I love the story of the little boy who's walking by a neighbor's apple tree and the tree's on the one side and uh, he's walking by and he and his dad are there and his dad says, yeah, you know, son, ever since I was a little boy, every time I'd walk by this yard, I'd get some apples from that tree. And the little boy said, well, dad, that, that's somebody else's stuff. Aren't you stealing? And so... The dad says, well, no, I always make sure that someone's not looking. I look to the left and I look to the right. And the little boy said, but daddy pulled on his shirt and says, isn't God watching? <laughs> Don't you love it when little kids remind you of what you should be doing? Should you really be doing that, daddy? <laughs> Didn't you tell me different? Don't do as I uh, uh, do, just as I say, son. Save me, help. Well... As this happens, Moses tries to bury what he's done. He buries the Egyptian in the sand and he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting. 
with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. Uh Uh-oh. People know. People probably found out that Moses killed this Egyptian. The guy who got spared probably was the first one to tell the story. Hey, you won't believe what happened. I was getting beat up by a taskmaster and the prince, uh, Moses, came to my rescue and killed this guy and buried him. And I'm sure the word spread like wildfire and all of a sudden Moses in this encounter realizes, wow, I'm found out. They know I killed him. And when Pharaoh, who was grandpa to Moses, heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. There was no hesitation. This was a capital crime to kill an Egyptian. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Now, you got that map that I gave to you? The land of Midian? just want to point out to you, you'll look up in the upper left corner uh, and you'll see the land of Goshen and there is the land of Egypt and you'll notice uh, there's a route from Egypt to Arabia. Notice that one from Memphis. Uh, see the Nile there just above Memphis on your left side. Anyway, if you follow that, you'll see there's the Red Sea and then there's um, the Gulf of Agaba, which is right on the, uh, it's this, I think the southwestern peninsula there of Arabia. Midian is right there on the south uh, east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. So if you want to know where Midian is, that's how far Moses had to travel. I'm not sure how many miles that is, but it's significant mileage going through some very uh, dusty and hasty conditions. And so not nothing said here about the journey, and I'm sure it's 100 plus miles, uh, probably more, uh, to get to where Moses was heading. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille tries to depict it, you know, that Moses is given a little bit of food and water and that he's walking. I don't know if he was walking either. You know, he could have had a horse for all I know. But it was an arduous journey. And God was obviously working in Moses' life in a uh, very uh, radical way. And so Pharaoh heard, tried to kill Moses. Moses flees and he settles down in this land of Midian. Now the priest uh, of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds uh, came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruul, their father, who is known later as Jethro, by the way, his name means friend of God, and he's uh, depicted here as a priest, so he's apparently a worshiper of God already. His father said, Why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. That sounds like a dad, doesn't it? I want to know who this boy is. Dressed like an Egyptian who helped you out. Now it interests me that they uh, right here say that Moses is Egyptian. Now, why do they say that? Moses is not Egyptian, he's Hebrew. Well, probably because he dresses like an Egyptian and maybe because he walks like an Egyptian. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in for you, nah, but I don't know. <laughs> just want to see if you're awake. <laughs> but, you know, 
even though Moses is Hebrew, they think he's Egyptian. Now, Egypt is a type of the world. And I wonder, this is my application mind for you tonight. I wonder, when people see me, what do they think of me? When they see the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I walk, the way I live, do they say, Michael's Egyptian? Michael's of the world? Or do they say, Michael's a child of God? Interesting. Seems to me that we got a problem in the church today. Too many people in the church look like they're Egyptian. Would you agree? Well, they said the Egyptian delivered us and he watered the flock and so Jethro, whose name, other name here is depicted as Raul, Raul, friend of God, he says, hey, get this guy in here. We need to hang out. We need to fellowship. And Moses uh, is invited in and 21 it says Moses was willing to dwell or he was content to dwell or live with the man and he gave his uh, daughter Zipporah to him or to Moses. We were in a tent in Israel and we got a chance to hang out in a Bedouin kind of tent and have a meal like they would have at this time. And it was several courses and you sat down there on kind of a hay thing and it's a low table and Alan's back was hurting and I was leaning up against something. But anyway, it was interesting to to get to experience that and how leisurely of a meal it is. You know, you get one thing at a time. You get kind of an appetizer and then you might get some chicken and rice and then you'll get some dried fruit and you'll have some tea and water and whatever. And it comes over a course and it takes a good hour and there's plenty of time to fellowship and interact and get to know somebody. And I wonder after uh, this intimate time where they ate together uh, how Jethro got to know Moses well good enough to know he was willing to give a daughter to him and so I'm sure he found out that Moses was actually Hebrew and I wonder going back to our application after people spend some significant time with us do we convince them that we're not of the world or the other way something to think about well as Moses now is content to live with uh, Jethro, he's kind of a twice-displaced guy, isn't he? First of all, he's in Egypt, which isn't even his homeland. Now he's out of Egypt in another land trying to be uh, a person who's content to dwell there. We know for 40 years, uh, Moses will dwell in Midian, and there he will live and take this wife and birth. Uh, she will birth two sons to him. And he was content to do so. And it just reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians 4, that he had learned the secret of contentment, that wherever he was, whatever he would do, he could be content because he knew Jesus Christ. And I wonder tonight uh, for us if we could say that, if we got displaced, if something happened, if we were out of our comfort zone, can we say, I I'm content. I know God's with me. And I know I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, as time unfolded, uh, she gave birth to a son. His name was Gershom. For uh, she, He said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And that's what Gershom's name means, the firstborn, a stranger there, literally. And now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry of help because of their bondage rose up to God. And so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel 
and God took notice. I just want you to uh, notice some things. Uh, the Isra- Israelites in verse 23 sighed. They cried out. They cried for help. And I want you to see in verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God, verse 25, saw and God took notice. See, the promise in the scripture is that God will never leave us. He will never desert you. He will never forsake you. And God is faithful to his promises. And Keith, it just reminds me of your testimony that no matter what we go through, what we face, what the obstacles may be, that God has set his, uh, his devotion on us. And because we are his children, he will never leave us or forsake us. That's the hope that we have tonight. No, ma- no matter what we go through, no matter if we make good decisions or bad decisions, he's with us. But would to God that we'd make good decisions <laughs> and grow in our faith and be usable for the master. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you that you are faithful to us. And as we look at this account of Moses, we see that in so many uh, ways your providential hand was working. Once again, we see that what Pharaoh intended for evil, you turned for good. And it reminds us of Genesis 50.20 and Romans 8.28 that you will work all things together for good to those who love you. And the circumstances were not good. Moses was in jeopardy. He could have died, but in the little ark, he was sent floating. And just like Noah, you kept him safe from the threat, from the judgment of Pharaoh. You saw him through. You even used uh, Pharaoh's own daughter to save him. And you had his mother be paid to nurse him. Moses grew, and maybe he got ahead of you, Lord. We don't know, but we know that he struck an Egyptian and killed him and And we know that the people of Israel just didn't get it. They didn't understand that their deliverer was right in front of them. So many times, Lord, we're that way. You put an open door before us. You'll instruct us. You'll give us uh, an inclination. And sometimes, Lord, we just don't get it. We're slow of heart. But I pray that you'll help us to believe you. I pray that you'll help us to seek your face in the little things and the big things of life. I pray that we'll be sensitive to your voice. And I pray, uh, like Moses, that we'll have a passion for your kingdom, Father. And as we see this story unfold and we see that Moses will be called and he will go back with your mighty power in hand, I pray that you'll remind us that uh, it does take time sometimes to develop into the person and the leader that you want us to be, Father. Uh, The first 40 years of Moses' life, it's often been said that you were showing him or that he was trying to prove to himself that he was somebody The next 40 years, you were showing him that he was really nobody. And then the next 40, you showed him what God can do with uh, someone who's a nobody and turn him into a somebody. It goes something like that. But the point is this. God, that you will take us and you will use seasons of our lives to use us for your great purposes. And I pray, Lord, that we'll just be mindful of that. Whatever uh, twists and turns we've had in our own faith experience, I pray that we'll hold on to you I pray in the seasons when it seems like it's dry and dusty and there's not much going on that we'll still look to you and have faith in you. In the times of excitement, the time when we really sense your hand, we'll hold on and be strong. Whatever we do, Lord, that we'll do all things for your glory and that both by word and deed we'll do all things for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen.